0: You don't want to write. You want to be a person who has written. Here's the secret, no one enjoys writing. And I'm not talking about writing, capital W, which includes staring out windows, coming up with ideas, having a book published and out there. There are fun parts to capital W writing. I'm talking about writing, drafting, typey, typey, typey. Okay, some of us enjoy that part. I've met them, they're awesome. I don't understand them, but they're awesome. But most of us, we want to have written. So here is how you go from a person who wants to write to being a person who has written. Write to your strengths, write in community, and have an expert guide around to motivate and teach you what you need to know and only what you need to know. And this is exactly what happens in the Year of Writing Magically workshop. Spaces are available for the 2024 workshop that is 10 months from March to December, where you will be part of a community in which I lead you. I teach you everything you need to know about craft and teach you everything you need to know about discovery, drafting, drawer phase, and revision. I walk you through everything along with a group of people that you will bond with, have an amazing experience with, and I absolutely guarantee you will get more work done on that book than you would have if you had gone it alone. Go to HowStory.Works, click on the Year of Writing Magically Workshop. Applications are open until December. All right, now go ahead and listen to the podcast. Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I am story expert who, sooner or later, sees everyone,
1: Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and mortal balladeer, Alisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we were going to do August, but then we changed it up. And it's our show, so we can do that. Today, we're going to be talking about the Sandman's special, Song of Orpheus. Song of Orpheus was written by Neil Gaiman,
0: penciled by Brian Talbot, inked by Mark Buckingham, colored by Danny Vazo and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Lisa
1: Quitney. Cover by Dave McKean. So be it. But there are conditions, rules. There are always rules. Time to wake up.
0: In the Song of Orpheus, we open to see Orpheus as we have known him, just ahead. He is floating in the water, crying out for his love Eurydice, when he realizes he is dreaming and sees his father watching over him. He becomes a full man again, because, you know, dreams, and then tells Morpheus that he had a strange dream, and Morpheus is all like, yeah, dreams are everything, past, future, you know, whatever. Orpheus is like, my future is me as a head floating in the sea. And Morpheus is like, eh, maybe, whatever, get up, it's your wedding day. Orpheus wakes up to see his best friend, Aristaeus. They prepare for the wedding day as Orpheus' family comes in, Morpheus, his mother Calliope, and a parade of endless, including delirium, despair, death, desire, destiny, and hello, destruction. Look, my husband is a bearded redhead of Scottish descent with a boisterous personality, so clearly destruction is my kink. Orpheus and Eurydice are married, and during the celebration, the Endless all take off. Except Death, who has to hang out, because there's going to be maybe some work to do here in a minute. Aristeus asks Eurydice to step aside to chat, and when she agrees, he assaults her. Because of course he does. She runs away, steps on a snake, and that's it for Eurydice. Orpheus, overcome by grief, cannot accept this fate. He goes to Morpheus to ask for help, and Morpheus refuses, Orpheus yells at Morpheus, saying he's no longer his son, and storms out. Later, Orpheus gets a visit from his uncle Destruction, who tells him that he can visit Auntie Death, and maybe she can help him. Orpheus goes to Death, and she tries to talk him out of it, but he won't listen. So she hooks him up with a transit card to the underworld, and he runs off, determined to get Eurydice back, or die trying. Hades and Persephone are like, you serious, bro? But then Orpheus starts to sing of his grief and love and loss and all the souls in the underworld are moved. Hades offers him a deal with conditions because there are always conditions and says that Orpheus can leave and Eurydice will follow right behind him. But Orpheus must not look back to see her until they are out of the underworld. Orpheus is like, sold American, and he starts his long trek out of the underworld, never looking back. But just as he's about to leave and be with his one true forever, he realizes that he hasn't heard any footsteps behind him. He thinks that Hades played him, and he looks back, just in time to see Eurydice reaching for him as she calls out his name and disappears back into the land of the dead. Orpheus becomes a hermit on an island. His mother, Calliope, shows up to warn him that the Bacanti, Sisters of the Frenzy, are coming, and they are dangerous. Like, real housewives of New Jersey, dangerous. (laughs) Orpheus doesn't care. Let them come. How much worse can it get? Well, the Sisters of the Frenzy arrive and tear Orpheus limb from limb, leaving basically just the head. So, you know, it's worse, Orpheus. And we end where we began, with Orpheus's head floating in the water, crying out for Eurydice. His head washes up on the shore, and Morpheus comes to visit, to say goodbye. He sets the head up in a, I mean, I don't know if if comfortable is the word, but let's go with that. Comfortable space. And Orpheus watches as Morpheus just leaves him there. He calls out for his father, but Morpheus just says, didn't you say you were no longer my son? And walks away leaving his kid there and never once looking back.
1: Oh, oh, my God. Okay, so I I just I have to tell you, before I give my response to the comic, that is my favorite summary that you have ever done. And if you don't (laughs) include the line about Ian in the body of this, you please, God, have to do it as an outtake.
0: Oh no, it'll be in. Yay! There. <laughs> it be in there. I think that he will appreciate that.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, right. so besides yeah. of course my reaction yes. to your um <laughs> to your incredible summary of events. <laughs> this is like so many Sandman issues. It's a story about the power of stories. Mm-hmm. And actually I, you know, I was at um I've I've been to 4 out of 5 of Neil Gaiman's um, lectures at Bard about storytelling. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. in one of them, he said, you know, when it comes to being a hedgehog or a fox, hedgehog does just one thing and fox does many, many things. And mm-hmm. Neil said he used to think he was a fox and now he's coming around thinking he might be a hedgehog and that mm-hmm. he is just told a lot, a lot of stories about the power and importance of stories. And yeah. this, this is absolutely one of those stories. You know, tell us about a hundred deaths or a thousand, and the mind kind of fritzes out, but you tell mm-hmm. us about one very personal loss, and even the furies cry.
0: Oh, I love the way you express that. That is so, so absolutely accurate. And there's a lot of stuff. Like going on in here. Eurydice is absolutely not at all centered in this story. And you know what? That's okay, because that's not what the story is about. The story is really about Orpheus. We're going to get deep, deep into that because I have so much to say about this. I love all the layers of meaning here. And I mean, come on, give me a bookend as a storytelling device and you know I'm going to love it, you know? Um, Both Morpheus and Orpheus can each get bent for different reasons, but the text doesn't rubber stamp either of their bullshit. So it's no, no harm, no foul. This is absolutely like when you look at people behaving badly and you see them live with the consequences of their bad behavior, that is OK. You know, a lot of people feel like all the stories have to like show everybody being perfect all the time. That's absolutely not the case. We need stories that show us what happens when you get your head wedged so far up your ass that nobody can even see it anymore. Um, And for for Orpheus, that's kind of, you know, depending on how you look at what the Bacanti did to him, kind of exactly what happened. Um, I love Destruction. I cannot wait to talk about Destruction. Um, This story gave me so many thoughts. And even when the main character needs a slap, I cannot help but absolutely love the, the experience of reading this story that has been you know, out there in the cultural zeitgeist for so many thousands of years for a reason, because getting our heads wedged up our ass is kind of a human condition. Oh, you put
1: things so very well. Um, <laughs> I I noticed from our notes that we were going to say another uh, mention of the reason that we're uh, also a little confusing right now in terms of the order of things. We are confusing. Everything is really confusing. Like, and I don't
0: understand any of it because I wasn't even there at the time that it happened, but like, wait, wait, uh, I uh, was. Some of these
1: collections. Right. I was, and I'm completely confused because it was so freaking long ago. It was
0: so freaking long ago. And there's like a, an order in which these were written and published and then there's the collections that I think sometimes switch up the order and then, so we were trying to figure all of that out. We got confused and then we just hit a point where we were like, hey, you know what? We just did Morpheus' story. Let's do the follow-up Orpheus story while we're in the Orpheus space, you know, and that's great. Except that last time, because we had done a story about Thermidor, which is a month, we thought we'd go to August, which is also a month, although it refers to an emperor. It's a very complicated thing. So we're trying to keep these kind of pulled together um, and we're failing. So we decided just to go with whatever we felt like reading next and what we felt like reading next was Orpheus. So next time we will be reading August. That's the next episode that we're doing but this one we're talking about Song of Orpheus and if you you know lovely listener have not read Song of Orpheus yet just go ahead and pause the podcast get out your Sandman collection go ahead and read it gonna be worth it it's amazing and then come on back and we will have this chat we'll wait for you. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the cover art. Um, We have Dave McKean's cover art, um, which shows a naked man from the back with his arms missing. So this is, I guess, mid-attack from the Sisters of the Frenzy. Um, Looking at a feminine figure who is wearing a blue dress, her head and shoulders looking as though they are retreating and fading into shadow. And I think that is it's such a neat kind of representation of you know this longing we have them in complementary color schemes so they're opposing each other it's like they're looking at each other across this you know vast um, space between them Um, and she is falling into shadow and he is just staring at her no arms can't reach for her so like the you know even though this isn't like a, a literal representation of what happened it is such a wonderful like metaphorical visual representation of what's at the heart of this Orpheus story. Um, and once again, like I think Dave McKean just did an amazing job with it.
1: I'm so dying to say <laughs> the thing that I'm supposed to not say to Lucien's library. That's okay. Can I say ahead. it, please? Yes, absolutely. It was glow-in-the-dark. This was a special double-sized issue and it was glow-in-the-dark mm-hmm. in the original floppy comic. Mm-hmm. Floppy meaning, you know, the, the it's floppy because com- it's not yeah, a right. found hardcover right, right. Mm-hmm. collected. And I I have always been a sucker for glow in the dark. It seemed very fun and appropriate for this. Oh, my God. I indeed. do remember, you know, being in the office. I think we were, you know, trying <laughs> to hold it up to the light and then turn off the light. So back when people worked in offices. Um, uh, yes. Remember
0: that. Um, th- It's so <laughs> cool. And now, like, I really want to get my hand on one of those original prints. That would have the glow have, in the dark effect. I need to find that. I,
1: I do have it somewhere, I think. Unless, I mean, it was the victim of one of my many moves. But no, oh, I'll be at your house this week. We'll look at. We'll look for it. <laughs> all, all I can say is, if you can't <laughs> accept some loss, then you know you end up in in deep shit. That is absolutely very true.
0: All right. So let's start with some discussion of I mean, here we are, like knee deep in myth and stories that have been told for ages. And now we have kind of Neil's take on this within the world of Sandman. So tell me a little bit about this, this Greek myth stuff we got going on. So
1: this is where I kind of put on my, you know, long gray beard and, and <laughs> my Robert Graves voice. So I I couldn't find uh, – I don't think I have my cheat notes. from I looked mm-hmm. a little at High Benders. I don't seem to have the annotated version of this. Mm-hmm. I do have Neil's version uh, – his version, his edition of the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology – Mm-hmm. And given the dates, I do believe that that is what he would have drawn on. This was pre-internet looking up. Mm-hmm. And um, so he would have had that. And of course, you know, uh, Euripides' play, The Bakai, for, I- I'm hoping I'm Bakai. I think it's just, called Bakai.
0: I, I had a friend say, who did it in college. And okay. we had, and it was a wild play.
1: And um, they called it The Bakai back then. So I'm guessing that's it. Okay, so that's background material. So I'm just going to call out some fun ancient Greek facts. This is one of those moments when not having my friend, the late wonderful um, scholar and writer and tarot expert Rachel Pollock, is a real loss because she knew more about Tiresias and Dionysus and uh, she Mm -hmm. would have been my go-to. So anyway, here are little bits. Dionys- Dionysus was originally the god of wine, um, but becomes the god of vegetation and warm moisture, then he becomes the god of pleasure and eventually is known as a god of civilization. So he he sort of grows wow. into a more important god of the busy over time. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, one of his most ancient festivals was the Agrionia and involved the sacrifice by immolation of a young boy. So there is Chief. this there is this um history of cruelty as well mm-hmm. as orgiastic celebration rites. And so we've got a sacrifice here. And you think about that line that's built in, you know, mm-hmm. where Orpheus is saying he doesn't want anything to lose its life at his wedding. And Aristeas mm-hmm. says, oh well, there ought to be a sacrifice. And of course right there is there there are multiple sacrifices um and in a way sorry i'm I'm going off track, but I think that by not giving pain and loss it's due in that moment mm-hmm. of celebration it it can be read as a kind of hubris mm-hmm. but anyway, orgiastic rites uh took place on the slopes of mount cithereron citheron i i sorry i Took Hebrew and not Greek, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to guess it's Kitharon. Um Neil did not make up all that bear-suckling, lewd savagery that, that's uh, classically sourced. Mm-hmm. Dionysus's retinue came to include the god Pan, who looked like a satyr, that mm-hmm. is to say, half human, half goat from the waist down, and some simian uh, aspects as well. Each region had its own pan, and the pan of Thessaly, which country, was Mm Aristeus. Another pan was Priapus, which is, of course, another term for the erect male member. And um, last but not least, in his Greek guise, Oneros, uh, or the personification of dreams, is often confused with Apollo the god of divination and prophecy, as well as the god of the sun. So when I was walking with Neil not long ago, he talked about, you know, finding sources in classical Greek mythology for Calliope having mm-hmm. been a lover and born Apollo a son. And Neil decided that, okay, you know, people confused Apollo and Dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was that was his take on it. So it it's uh so anyway, those are a bunch of the classical you know we 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 notice probably most of us are more familiar with Shakespeare and a bit with Chaucer, mm-hmm. but I have a feeling that these days not as many of us have a classical Greek and Latin you know uh background so the background in mythology, yeah, um you know
0: i it's so neat to kind of like see all of these you know, these stories being told through the lens of the Sandman mythos, you know? Um, And yeah, so like, uh, traditionally, um, Orpheus is stated to be Apollo's son, but mixing that up, and I mean, clearly all of this is done through the lens of a Sandman world, a Sandman universe. Um, So it's uh, it's very fun to kind of like see those adjustments that... Like so many of the stories that we've been telling, you know, for millennia through like all of these start off in an oral tradition and get passed down and passed down. The thing sort of goes through a filter of human imagination and human metaphor. And I think it does get to where when you when you look at it through a different lens, in the same way that we often do with Shakespeare, where we'll take Hamlet and put it in like the 1940s or something like that, that you can look at it through a different lens and sort of tease out different things from that story that has been sort of infused with years and years and years of, of human um, imagination and understanding and experience that makes it such a universal kind of story. And so all that mythology, you know, not just Greek and Roman, but all world mythology, everything, every time you go to one of those old, old stories, you will find these human resonances that come from it being filtered through so many minds and so much imagination. And I think this is just another... S- as another stone in that pathway you know um it's such an interesting thing to see it taken from that perspective and then we add in things from our universe and our understanding and our imagination that go into this story which is so cool i mean i really
1: love it uh, absolutely and i realized i didn't say explicitly but of course the story of orpheus losing his eurydice and going back into the underworld uh is a classical Greek myth. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I can't believe I didn't even mention that. And um, and it's been used as the inspiration for all kinds of paintings. And mm-hmm. I remember actually, isn't there an amazing movie from the, is it the 40s or later called Black Orpheus? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, my mom introduced me to that. And mm-hmm. there's a, a Black Orpheus, but it's I can't remember now if if the movie's from the 40s, 50s, or 60s, but it's an amazing movie. And I forgot to look it up, so there it is, not in my notes.
0: Yeah, we'll throw it out there. Somebody in the fandom may be able to find it and, like, tweet it at us, which would be awesome. Um, All right, so you have some things to say, too, about um, Wild Women. And I'm fascinated by this because it does feel to me... Not being quite as familiar with it. like I I'm familiar with the story of Orpheus and Eurydice up until the point that he looks back. Uh, that Orpheus was just a head. I don't know if that's something from the original Greek or if that's like a, a sandman edition. Uh the the um Bacante coming in and just ripping him to shreds. I don't know if that is also part of this. So I'm really fascinated to hear what you have to say about these uh, these wild women that kind of come in and uh, and just rip him apart.
1: Well, I believe all of it is grounded in mm-hmm. classical mythology. But I was just taking a moment and thinking, I had remembered reading not so long ago, that animals that are capable of higher level problem solving, mm-hmm. that are capable of tool use, and even of empathy, are the only animals that are capable of cruelty as well. So that You know, it's been posited that what you need to be cruel is a theory of mind. If you don't understand that another being can suffer as a result of your actions, Mm -hmm. and if you can't have empathy with their actions, then whatever you do to them can't by definition be cruel. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: Because the thing that causes cruelty is the understanding that you are being cruel. That kind yes. of like meta level understanding of it,
1: interesting and and I was thinking about you know Dionysus is very much a god of creativity and release and sexual pleasure mm-hmm. and abandon, and yet there's this whole element of of savage cruelty in his mm-hmm. in in his rights at, the, at this specific time, and I just Wanted to give, I don't want to go too deep into the rabbit hole here, as, mm-hmm. as is my want sometimes. Um, but th- there is a way in which uh, I know there have been studies about how cruelty and affection can activate the same endorphins, dopamine reward centers in the brain. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this quote that I found from uh, neuroscientist Mary Dahlman of the University of California. After the excited state of predation, animals need to reduce their levels of arousal, which can occur through further aggression or affectionate behavior. So it's uh, they, there was a mention in this article of, you know, <laughs> there is a, a, a it is really make love, not war, or, you know, <laughs> war, not love. <laughs> so I just wanted to give a little nod to the weird twin sides of the god, twin sides of the coin here.
0: Yeah, which, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is a Buffy reference. There is an episode where um, another slayer comes to town called Faith, and she says, isn't it wild how after a slay you get either hungry or horny? And then everybody looks at Buffy, and Buffy's like, well, sometimes I crave a nonfat yogurt after. And there's something interesting <laughs> about that after the slay that that Faith, who is very much a, a person who lives in her visceral experience, wants to go out and have sex. Um, So and that is, you know, that sense of like the the kind of like working through those heightened emotions that they're
1: two sides of the same coin. It's so dated now. Buffy would now be eating like a keto yogurt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, like
0: it's it's interesting um, how that. You know, these are, these can be reflections on each other, you know, that the, the consumption of another person, either through violence or mm-hmm. through, you know, sex and affection and all of that.
1: Neat. Um, the other thing that I was reflecting on is that there is a way that looking at the story now, I see maybe I saw it back way back when and I just don't remember because I've forgotten a lot. But. You know, the fact that Orpheus refuses to relinquish his grief and turns his back on his father and mother and on the possibility of loving again and even on, you know, sexual abandon, that's Mm -hmm. a religious right for the bacchant. Uh, Or the Bacante. You told me how to pronounce it at the beginning of this episode. Oh, I have no idea. I looked it up
0: on the internet and there were like three different pronunciations. So I think you can just say whatever you want.
1: This really should have been a drunk episode. I just want to say (laughs) that now that we're halfway through it, I'm realizing if we ever did a drunk episode, it should have been this one. Oh, man, really? (laughs) Well, I'll have to find another drunk episode. I mean, right? Like the drunk history of Sandman.
0: Uh, actually that would be an awesome like Patreon bonus or something like that where we just sit we get and drink everyone jump and talk about exactly and just talk about and tell the stories of Sandman. Yes.
1: And then we think that we've been really clever and we listen to it after. <laughs> oh man,
0: yeah. I would have to hire somebody to edit that. I think
1: it would probably drive me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So in the sense that the Greek tragedies always involve a fatal flaw in the hero, mm-hmm. I prefer Neil's version of the fatal flaw that Orpheus cannot let go of his grief to yes. the idea that the fatal flaw is like with Lot's wife that you, because you love someone, your, your spouse, your, your child so much, you can't just trust that they're still following you to safety. You look and that's, that's a flaw. Yeah. That mm-hmm. just doesn't feel like a bona fide flaw. Yeah, and I I think that this feels very satisfying to me because in the story world, I think we're meant to understand that even though the the bacante, the Maynads, the mm-hmm. the wild um, women no of the grape, <laughs> that yes. even if they even though they are savage and out of control. There are always rules. And if Mm -hmm. he had made love with them, if he had celebrated the rights of abandon and sacrifice with them, they would not have turned to him in violence.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Not that I want to be blaming the victim here, but in the story (laughs) structure, I do think it it holds In the story structure, when you
0: look at it from a perspective of not moral judgment, but rather um, meaning you know, and significance of what what it all means underneath it all. I mean, absolutely.
1: And just the last thing I wanted to say about this is reading it this time, what is it, 30 years? Is it Mm -hmm. 30 years? How long was 1991 ago? Oh, goodness. Um,
0: Yeah, we're looking at 30 30 years plus.
1: Yeah. So I found myself thinking about the wild rights, Mm -hmm. the innocence of teenagers and young adults you know at rock concerts and raves Mm -hmm. celebrating life with eros and intoxication and I in light of things that have gone on in the world Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that um, this story hit a nerve maybe everything hits a different nerve right now yeah, yeah, definitely.
0: Um, and I think, too, like having a story, the timing of this, along with a lot of stuff that's going on, but talking about grief and a story that focuses on grief and how we work through and process grief, I think is is very timely. But it, it is always timely for somebody, because no matter what, like, yeah. and we grieve many things. We grieve... Um, You know, we grieve people that have passed, but we also grieve events in our lives, things that change things. And so we are no longer the person that we thought we were before. Mm -hmm. Uh, We age, we lose, we change. Um, There are so many things that, that you will grieve in your lifetime that it becomes one of like the most universal human experience. And um, because of that, talking about grief is always valuable in stories. And so to be coming to this story as a story of grief, um, I think is... um, for me, just like, it's, it's always something that I'm going to want to go to and want to talk about. Um, and I find this to be so layered because again, we're not talking about Orpheus as like this, Oh, poor Orpheus, you know, we're looking at Orpheus through the lens of his fatal flaw, which is that his self and selfishness and immaturity and inability to release Eurydice to where she is going, you know, she is gone to him. Um, he is completely unable to release her, but that's not about her. That's about him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's about him mourning something that wasn't supposed to happen to him. You know, in and, and this, none of this is about Eurydice. I'm going to get to her in just a minute, but none of it's about that. It's always about Orpheus. And he suffered a tragic experience, but his inability to move forward and live his life, which is exactly what Morpheus tells him to do. Um, makes this even more tragic. He is going through something that everyone goes through, but somehow his grief, his pain, are more important than literally anything else, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, You know, and fair enough, like, his fate reflects that. Um, But his fate is intertwined with Eurydice's, and we don't even care about her, except for how she motivates Orpheus's story. Um, And then I find this so interesting coming after. I mean, of course, like we are reading it right on the heels of Thermidor, but this appears in the timeline of the stories being released um, a bit later, you know, but having seen the Orpheus that existed with Johanna Constantine, who is completely and thoroughly characterized and actually more centered in that story than Orpheus is, um, I find that to be such a beautiful reflection On who Orpheus is here, uh, to the point where he ends the story as just a head, you know, Um, and uh, and who he is in context of Johanna Constantine. Love all of that reflection. I think that is absolutely beautiful within the the world of you know the Sandman stories. Um, But Eurydice, interestingly enough. You know, we talk about fridging women, which is the thing that happens, um, you know, in stories where a woman exists basically solely to die or be raped or be some in some ways traumatized and lost in order to motivate a a man's story. And her existence in that story is solely for that. It comes from... yeah, I was gonna ask Yeah, it, it came comes from comics. I actually used to know this. We talked about it a lot on was it- um Listen Up A-holes. It was a comic book um where a woman was put in a fridge and then the uh, the superhero found her in the th- fridge and then that motivated his story.
1: I thought it was an Indiana Jones movie. No? No, in Indiana
0: Jones in, in the, the terrible fourth movie, he was inside a fridge. Uh, he was put inside a fridge for a while that he survived because he's, you know, he's a boy. Um, but this uh, but this is something that was called out at that time in reference. And the fridging is used in reference to that. But this is something that clearly happens in stories mm. throughout time because Eurydice is always, you know, in the fridge for Orpheus, you know, and showing his story. Um, she is not centered in this at all. And I think that that is actually used really well here. This is something that can be a criticism and is often used as some kind of knee-jerk feminine criticism that like, oh, here we go again, right? Here is a lady who is fridged. You know, we don't even know her. We don't know anything about her. She ends up dying because of one stupid man who suffers absolutely no consequence for anything that he did. Aristeas just goes off and gets drunk and does it to somebody else, you know? Um, And yet Eurydice knows
1: the one who dies. Mm -hmm. Actually, we're told that Aristeas has not gotten over the death of his wife. So Uh his own justification i'm assuming Mm -hmm. for what he does is that he you know he hasn't loved since his wife died and he's so overcome by his feelings that he can't control himself Mm -hmm. so we have yet another version of how too great a grief can actually make you guilty you know of a transgression
0: right or how making absolutely everything in the universe about you and yes. not about you know um the the people that you love um that you have lost like it's it's really interesting and i think that honestly like this is a circumstance where putting eurydice in the fridge reveals so much mm. about this very self-centered perspective that orpheus has and this is one of those things too when i talk to writers like nothing is always bad right it's how you use it it's how you use that when writers you know put a woman in the fridge with absolutely no purpose to it and then just just motivate some male story about going out and you know beating the shit out of everybody because he can't get over his loss or whatever without it without the text actually looking critically at that behavior that's a problem you know but here we have Eurydice in the fridge and i think that she serves the story because the story was never going to be about her it's not about her because orpheus can't see past the end of his own nose orpheus cannot see anything except his pain, his suffering, you know? Um, And when Orpheus comes to save her, you know, from this world full of people who have died, whose loved ones have mourned them, right? Um, But it's Orpheus who's going to get his back because this is special because it is his. And it's not even about her or what she means to the world. It's just all about him. Um, and so he comes back into this space where we see all of these dead people, but all of them, none of them matter. We don't care about them. Why would we care about them? Orpheus didn't love them, so they don't matter. The seeing that reflection in his in his hubris and his selfishness and his self centeredness, I think, is so incredibly beautiful. The fact that like she doesn't even get a voice, he doesn't even get to talk to her right? He doesn't get to ask her, like, you, you know, people, everybody dies, everybody goes to this place. Maybe that is her path. Maybe that is where she needs to be. Um, And she gets nothing. And then, and then at the end, like you pointed out before, it's not that he's like, oh my God, is she okay? These rocks are sharp. Does she have shoes on her feet? Does she, do, we know, do I know that she's going to be all right from this trip? Yada, yada. I can't hear anything. I can't, you know. It's not that. It's that when he left, he heard Hades laughing. And then that laughter just echoed in his head and echoed in his head. And he thought he was being made a fool. And Mm. so for the for his sense of pride, that's why he looks back to make sure that he's right and not being laughed at.
1: I did. You know, I never caught that. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, as you say this, I'm realizing he resembles his father. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah
0: cuz Orpheus is not the only one being a dick in this. Morpheus has got some issues too. We're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah, and this is but, yeah. pre
1: this is pre-imprisoned Morpheus. Yes. He's got his ruby. He's got, you know, mm-hmm. a, just he is so full of himself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. I, and that, I think, also, like, the... And this is the thing. I think Sandman, even in the individual episodes, or it, it, individual issues, there are wonderful things within that issue. But then when you look at it in the context of the whole, and, like, as we bop through time and we see these different faces of Morpheus, it's... God, so fascinating. And, you know, and we're going to reflect back on, you know, his relationship with Nada and the fact that he never forgives. There's so much stuff going on there that I think is amazing. Uh, But to finish up this discussion of Eurydice, um, you know, we have her last words as this idiot turns around and looks at her and destroys any hope she has of being alive again, you know. Um, And her last words are like, Orpheus, my love, instead of Orpheus, you stupid asshole. Okay, fine. Send me back. I don't care, you know, like at that point, she must be just over it, you know? So here we have a woman who has no story of her own, no personal agency, no personality, beautiful and graceful, mean absolutely nothing. We kill her at the hands of one man to motivate the story of another. Um, This is classic for Jane. And yet, in the context where we are not rubber stamping the behavior of anybody else involved, where we are looking at all of this critically, where this is a story about Orpheus's inability to see her. So of course, we don't get to see her. You know, I think that actually, it works. And here is an issue of a a fridging instance where I think it actually serves a very critical purpose. Um, So I actually it's I I like it. And I love when this happens because I always every time I talk about something that is overall seen as negative when I'm teaching in my courses, I always want to bring up an instance Mm. where it's actually done well, because I think that you can do anything well if you do it with thought and context and everything. And so now I finally have an example of where fridging is actually valuable. You know, so I, and I guess because it's valuable, I don't think it's fair to actually call it fridging. I think it's something else in that case, because the whole context of fridging is that it's not valuable, that it is just a way of using a woman for a purpose in a story where she is not given full agency or full characterization and she is her experience is not centered at all. Um, and I think that that is something that reflects a, a negative element in our um, culture. So I wouldn't even actually qualify this as fridging, but I will for the sake of having a good example of it. So I'm going to I'm going to use it anyway. Um, so the next thing that I wanted to bring up, though, um, which we have not talked about and I am so excited about because I have been unspoiled in Sandman. Um, and you've got to give me that, credit here. I you have, have managed, managed to, not to not say anything. I know it's been All difficult. These years of friendship talking about Sandman and you've managed to give so this is the first moment. I don't know if it's the first moment in the series. Again, we're kind of bopping a little out of order no, here. No, no, so it is.
1: It is. This it is. is this is the moment. And I what I didn't realize, Lani, is that you were going to ship him so damn hard.
0: Oh, I ship him so hard. I am. Wait, can lusting. you ship a
1: single character or is does it does I guess to I ship be... him with me, right? You know, because <laughs> I'm just sort of have... is that an auto ship? What is that? I
0: don't, I don't know what that is. Interesting idea. Um <laughs> Autoerotic erotic is something like that, maybe. Uh, but anyway, so Destruction... <laughs> shipurbation? Shipurbation, maybe something <laughs> like that. Um, so Destruction shows up, And like, I have, you know, the only thing I have known is that we have a sibling who has disappeared, who has just forsaken his responsibilities and buggered off somewhere and nobody knows where he is and he hasn't talked to anybody. And so because of that description, without knowing who he was or what, like, I thought that he was going to be basically an Orpheus type, just to sit there and be like, oh, woe is me and I'm such a sad guy and I don't want to do this anymore and I quit. You know, and just running off and not talking to his siblings anymore. And here we see, like, I don't know if that's who Destruction becomes, but who he is at this point. I'm like, he comes in. He's so vibrant and bubbly. You know, he's redheaded and bearded, as is my husband. So I absolutely love that energy.
1: Yeah. I forgot who he was really modeled after. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. having, a, a Brian's, Brian, uh, a famous musician, I think. Um, oh, I don't know. And I'm just having a moment's space, but I see him now as, you know, um, one of the non-upsetting things I've seen on the site, formerly known as Twitter, is <laughs> um, there's a Scott toilet tissue ad, mm-hmm. which has the actor who played the red-haired bearded guy who lusted after Brienne of Tarth.
0: Oh, oh, yes. I love so him. So he's just like
1: lying there with oh, the God, yeah. on a lawn with some Scott paper tissue looking like <laughs> totally like he would <laughs> Dup that tissue with a Scottish accent. Oh my God! Accent. I have to see that. And oh my God! And I, I, so I'm just getting that kind of lusty, earthy, exuberant yeah. sexual energy from from oh destruction. My God. He's
0: wonderful. I love everything about him. He's so vibrant and happy. You know, and I just I love that. And I love that when Orpheus, you know, I think he comes to visit Orpheus and then Orpheus is like, Wah, you know, and then he goes, dude, you're in love with the idea of her, not actually her. I love that he calls it out. I love that he sees what's going on. And I also love that he's like, all right, look, I gave you my warning. But if you're determined to be on this path and go ahead and talk to death. Right. You know, see what's going on. Orpheus on his way, because it's not his job to stop Orpheus from being an idiot, because if you stop somebody from doing the stupid thing that they think that they're going to do, they're going to do it anyway. Like, you know, there's you can give them the advice and you can be like, here's what I see. And if they ignore you, then you're just like, all right, here you go. Here's the key to your destruction. Go ahead and take it. And that's what I love, right? Destruction actually opens the door to Orpheus's literal destruction right? Mm. Love all of that. Um, And even though he knows that Orpheus needs to grow up, his whole obsession with getting Eurydice back is bullshit. He sets him on the path because that's what Orpheus asked for. And if you're intent on your own self-destruction, then who is going to open that door better than destruction? Like, I love this character so much. I had no expectation. I thought that I was going to be really annoyed by whoever this other brother was who just went, went off. And I absolutely cannot wait to see that story unfold and to see like what actually happened to him um god i love this series so much what is really funny is that the further we go into it the more complex it gets the more flavors there are the more just drawn in i get and you you know we're so lucky because you could have been assigned to anything to something that <laughs> wasn't this good and you got to work on this like that's amazing
1: yeah, yeah, no, it's um and it's really a lot of fun revisiting it because it does yeah. all have a different texture, you know, in in uh in the Middle Ages than it did in, you know, the Bronze Age. <laughs>
0: right. So I, I'm curious, what was your response to destruction when you first saw him show up?
1: I just I I loved how unexpected it was. Mm-hmm. There is he is not like any of the other Endless, you, you know, if you had to imagine knowing, you know, the Endless, who the missing brother is, yes, you would think, well, you know, is he is he going to be a little like this or a little like that? I mean, in, in a way, he is closest in personality to death. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He has this and death and destruction, right, yeah. are the two bright sidey endless. Like, yes, they are the optimists it. of the family,
1: the, I, you know, cheerful, love it. boisterous oh ones.
0: It's so freaking good, Elisa. And I'm so glad, too, because going into this, I didn't know how I was going to respond to this. And I hate when I don't like something. I hate when I go into something blind and I don't like it and then it ends up being a thing. Um, but God, this has been so delightful. And can I can I tell you another reason why I'm delighted with this particular issue? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right talk about writing devices, right? And a lot of times people, and especially like sometimes writers can be overly critical of writing devices. It's like, well, it's not, you know, original and it's formula and yeah, it is not, it is all in how you use it. And here we have two writing devices that I absolutely love all mushed together um, and becoming a thing. Like um, if you want to get me, I'm an easy get use writing devices that reflect on each other meaningfully and I will seriously be yours forever. And I adore how the story starts and ends with Morpheus and Orpheus and the head in the water. Right. Um, And the first scene, Oh God, I love this. The first scene ends with Morpheus turning his back and saying, I'll see you at the wedding. And then the last scene ends with Morpheus turning his back and saying, you will never see me again. Um, I love that reflection. It's heartbreaking. Morpheus is being a dick, but I absolutely love it. Um, and then, and then, as if that wasn't good enough, Neil actually takes these bookends and adds a third reflective scene to the middle, which makes it a three beat, right? so we have this meeting in the middle. We have three times that Orpheus and Morpheus are together. So we have the opening and the end which reflect on each other. Beautiful bookends. Um, And then in the middle, Orpheus comes to ask Morpheus for help and Morpheus says, grieve and move on, which is good advice. And Orpheus throws a little hissy fit and says, I'm no longer your son. And turns his back on Morpheus. So in each one, like in the first one, Morpheus turns his back and says I'll see you later. In the last one, Morpheus turns his back and says you'll never see me again. And in the middle, Orpheus turns his back and says and i don't want to talk to you
1: I, I, and, I, oh my god and retroactively it so deepens our understanding of thermidor and oh you god. know and morpheus coming to johanna constantine and making this deal to to rescue his son's head and this shows us you know the i mean so, obviously, the Sandman of Thermidor still has not been imprisoned. He's still pretty arrogant. Yeah. And yet there has been a thawing. There has been something. Moving in, he is moving. He is moving in that direction. He is He's moving
0: in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love it so much. I love it so much. Like, I can't, like, I really, like, and I just read it right before because I, I, like, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit. I tend to come into these episodes with dirt on my knees, having slid into home base <laughs> in the last possible second. And um, so I just read this issue for the first time. And the more we're talking about it now, like as we're talking about it, as we're processing it, I find that the more I talk about it, the more I absolutely love this issue. And mm-hmm. it may be one of my favorites, which happens all the time when I read these, right? Um, but let's talk about Morpheus. Let's talk about where he is. I mean, again, this is, again, pre-stuck in a glass bubble for a year, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And Morpheus is right with the advice that he gives Orpheus, but he's such a dick about everything else. When Calliope wants to dance, he refuses. Um, And then later when Calliope comes to see Orpheus, um, and she tells him about how like, you know, hey, I I, kind of broke up with your dad, you know? uh, I'm pretty sure I'm very full of enough with this shit energy right now, you know? Um, And she says Morpheus never forgives, um, which we've seen repeated, you know, through the Staman series as a fatal flaw for Morpheus.
1: Yes. Okay, so this-I mean, I love that section with Calliope so much because oh, in the midst of all of this grand tragedy, there is the small tragedy of the failure of a marriage. Yeah. And what Calliope says is he will not share anything of himself. Mm-hmm. You know, this, so this sort of, I do not dance, you know, not even with you, my wife. Yeah. There is some way, even though, I mean, as far as we know, this is not his only love, but his only spouse. Mm-hmm. And even with her, he will not bend, he will not compromise, and he will not share himself. Yeah. And that dynamic, and this is to me, sort of the, the very beating heart of what makes Sandman so great. You get all this mythological stuff, but you get stuff that feels authentically contemporary and true, which is, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in a marriage and, you know, the other person seals themselves off, then, you know, it's, it's, that is, <laughs> that is a kind of, you know, just as or- Orpheus locks himself off in grief from yes. life. But Mm -hmm. if you're locked off in terms of your responsibilities and your job and your role and you're not able to give to your wife Mm -hmm. or your son, that's another way of um, kind of – I want to say like flouting the rights of Dionysus. Yeah. Well, I mean
0: marriage is not like a state – Right. You are not either married or you're not. Marriage is an action. The way that love, like marriage is a verb, the way that love is a verb. Right. Like it doesn't exist if you don't, I mean, it may exist legally, but it doesn't exist in spirit yeah. if you don't connect. It is about being connected with another person. And so we mm-hmm. see like Orpheus never got this marriage, which is what he would have gotten because he's so freaking self-centered and and dumb, that Eurydice would have lost her patience with that shit pretty early on, you know? And um, who knows if he would have actually grown up, But considering that he absolutely refuses to grow up to the point where he loses everything but his head, you know? Um, All of this is, you know, the the marriage that he would have gotten probably would have been reflected in the marriage that Calliope and Morpheus did get, which is, if you're not active... In this marriage, if you are not active in this partnership, you know, if you don't treat it as a verb, it will wither and die, you
1: know. And and I wonder in a way if the very guarded and cynical uh, Johanna Constantine is able to love him because, first of all, he's unavailable, but second of all, because she sees in him you know, something of the magical youth that he was. Yeah. And there, there's this, I don't know, there's something lovely too that we meet him as, you know, an object of, of desire in, mm-hmm. in a weird way. And and now we get to see, you know, his, his origin story. I think that's another great thing that Neil does is he creates a question in the mind of the reader before he gives you that story. So yeah. we- You know, start with Calliope and, oh, wait, there's a kid. And then we go into Mm Thermidor, and, wait, that's the kid? How did the kid get to be just a head? And then we get the story. So that's, you know, writers take note. That's a great way to add, you know, hunger for your story. Right. And that is, too, there's a there's a
0: line where, you know, a lot of times as writers, I feel like we feel the need to explain everything And I think that that can be valuable for when we write for ourselves. You know and explain it a little bit but but creating a curiosity gap in the storytelling and leaving openness within a wide world for other stories to be told when it's their time to be told i think is really interesting um and neil does create that in each of these things he creates like i remember the introduction of nada in the beginning was kind of like a throwaway thing and i'm like who's nada what's going on with nada what's this thing with nada and then we finally do get that story and that answer um but there's so much in in this world that um you know you see the shadows and shapes, you know, in the corner of something, but that's not what we're doing right now. And so, Neil is really skilled at like dropping that breadcrumb and then being like, Later, we're going over here now, you know? Yeah, yeah. um, he is a, a wonderful, I think, guide, you know, through this land that, um, that you know, is the world is so broad and so big and so complex, and it just is so interesting to see all of these little areas of shadow have the light turned on for a minute. And you're like, oh, OK, I get it now, you know. Um, but the the Morpheus, you know, fatal flaw in that he he's so stubborn and he doesn't open up and he doesn't forgive. You know, we see that set up now after we've already seen it sort of under like the way that he grew through the relationship with Hob Gadling, right? And then, you know, you think I'm one of your friends, please, you know, and he walks off in a huff. Then he spends a century in in a Christmas ornament and then it decides, oh, okay Maybe I can relax some of these things a little bit. And he softens, um, you know, and even though he, he kept his word, you know, so far that Orpheus would not see him again. Um, he did set Johanna to rescue him. And that's before, you know, life in a, in a, in a globe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the moment where he turns his back on his son's head and says, I thought I wasn't your father anymore. So, you know, whatever, you will never see me again. It's so incredibly shitty. Um, And I kind of love that because it's part of like, again, your characters not only don't have to be, you know, completely capital G good heroic all the time, but they shouldn't be because you know what? I'm not. You're not, we're not, humans are not, right? We all have those things that we have to grow through. And having a character this complex and this flawed, um, I think, gives us a sense of, oddly enough, the humanity in this inhuman creature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we're getting to see the Sandman not knowing what it really means to be a parent, because just because your kid has a hissy fit and says, "You're not my real parent anymore." yeah you, know, you you do not take them up on that. you Your role is to hold steady, you know, as they rage, and in some way, Sandman's not mature enough for that mm-hmm. yet, not in yet. this. yeah, and as a lot of us, when we
0: have children, are also not mature enough. Um, yeah. you know, to uh, to
1: be the parent that we would sometimes wish that we could be, you know. Well, um, it's it's rough because we watch them making mistakes and not listening to us. Yeah, and um, and you know, we do not we do not want them to. Uh, we don't know. want them
0: to suffer, but sometimes they have to, right? Yeah, I mean, sometimes they have to. Hopefully, not like this. I, ideally, ideally not. Um, but, uh, but all right, I believe I hear some music in the background that's telling us it's time for Lucian's library. So let's go ahead and shift into that. Give us the behind the scenes on this stuff.
1: Okay. So Brian Talbot, who mm-hmm. also penciled August, which we'll read next, is so good at capturing ancient, uh, Greece, just mm-hmm. as we'll see he is with ancient Rome, just something very specific and dramatic about his people and Mark Buckingham everyone calls Bucky, is just mm-hmm. such a, a brilliant inker. Um, especially, I mean, I remember looking at the original inks for that page where the marble palace of, of, of death with her snazzy gown. And, um, and he, I, I mean, he went on to do, uh, he also penciled, he goes on to pencil some Sandman issues. Mm-hmm. He became known as the main, is it the main or the only penciler for fables? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he wrote at least an issue of, of fables as well. So anyway, if you are fans of this team, uh, you should look up more books. Brian Talbot drew and wrote, uh, his own comic, The Tale of One Bad Rat, um, which is just a, a wonderful, heartbreaking story. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to give a little shout out to the art team, um, I've mentioned the the glow-in-the-dark cover already because I could not resist. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention – so my mom, whom I mention a lot here, Mm. uh, told me – I can't even remember the first time she told me about the poem by um, Rainier Marie Rilke called Orpheus Mm -hmm. Eurydice Hermes. And I think we're going to put the whole – poem in our show notes. This is the translation by Stephen Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to read one, you know, I'll just read the last bit because we get Eurydice's point of view. Yeah, But now she walked beside the graceful God, her steps constricted by the trailing grave clothes, uncertain, gentle, and without impatience. She was deep within herself, like a woman heavy with child, and did not see the man in front or the path ascending steeply into life. Deep within herself, being dead, filled her beyond fulfillment. Like a fruit suffused with its own mystery and sweetness, she was filled with her vast death.
0: Okay, there is so much there that I find so fascinating. First of all, that we get to see anything from Eurydice's uh, perspective is is really nice. But also this this idea that the... Death is a process. It is a a space that you move into. And we all do, you know, Um, and the idea that this is where she is because this is where she is supposed to be, that that is the next phase in her, her whole experience and that death has fulfilled her. You know, that death has given her something and that she is, we are all fundamentally changed by all of our experiences Mm. that once you have passed, right, that becomes part of who you are, you know. Um, and, uh, and so I like, I, there's so much about that, that I love. We'll go ahead and put it in the show notes. Presuming I'm, I'm presuming it's, it's, in, you know, not copyrighted at this point. So
1: I think, I don't know about the Stephen Mitchell, um, translation but I think is, since, yeah, yeah, I don't know for sure, but, um, I'll look it up. I, I, I'll look it up
0: if it is available yeah. and I can legally reproduce it. I will put it in the show notes.
1: If not, you know, look up guys, the Stephen Mitchell translation, mm-hmm of of the poem it's yeah. it's really there's more to it and it's great it is it's absolutely wonderful um
0: but i and, i love that and it's a, it's a really neat way to get that other perspective in there the story uh, the story here that is not about orpheus but this story is about orpheus and it very 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 uh well illustrates all of the things that we need to talk about with orpheus
1: absolutely and now for something
0: gross.
1: <laughs> <laughs> On page 45, the bacant or the main ad that's yodeling in savage glee is actually holding Orpheus's manhood. It's been uh, discreetly colored. I still remember Karen Berger saying to me, make sure that Brian doesn't draw something too explicit. So I do know that uh-huh. I conveyed that. And then Karen looked at it a bit askance and said, can you know, have Bucky ink it really vaguely. And she still wasn't happy. And she said, have Danny color it as mutedly as possible. So if you didn't notice, that's what it was. And also, you know, mostly I can't remember stuff that happened 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I need the scripts or the notes, but I don't have the script. I don't have the notes, and I remember very clearly that in that silent panel where Aristaeus, uh, you know, is 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 watching the wedding, he is having a totally priapic reaction <laughs> to the wedding kiss. <laughs> I did
0: not notice that, but I will absolutely be going back to <laughs> uh, to check it out. And this, and once again, here we go. The art brings in. A lot of layers into a story, (laughs) into a comic book. Yes, indeed. Um, So those are wonderful details to keep an eye out for. All right, Elisa. So here we are at the end. Um, What is your favorite art, your favorite page of art in this?
1: Um, I think in terms of the art, my favorite page is Orpheus going into, um, you know, first into it, it, the lead up, which I love, is Orpheus going into Death's modern apartment. Yes. And then her bringing out the glam. I mm-hmm. love that reveal. I love yeah. that she's still not going ancient Greek for him because she'll <laughs> compromise, but only so far. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's she's royalty, too. She, she's yeah. She's not so kind that she'll wear a toga for him.
0: <laughs> and I I appreciate that that she you know she's like I'll meet you halfway kid but no you know yeah. um, and she's still very much herself you know even in the the different perspective um I gotta say like the two-page uh you know reveal of uh, destruction when he visits Orpheus and they have that whole chat um I absolutely love that destruction bounces on the page um, is so much fun and um, and the the Acting in the artwork is tremendous throughout this whole thing. Um, But like just the there's so little destruction in this um, issue, but it is so vibrant. Every every second with him is so vibrant and so powerful. And I just absolutely love that art. Um, All right. So let's go to the favorite part of the story. What was your favorite part of the story?
1: That heartbreaking ending between Mm -hmm. Calliope and her son. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if that would have been what I chose back in 91 when I yeah. first read this, um, because I wasn't a mom yet. But mm-hmm. to think about your grief at watching your child, who's no longer young enough that you can make them listen to you, but yeah. watching them making a tragic mistake, that's very heartbreaking for me. That is, that is absolutely devastating. What did you find the most... I don't know, resonant.
0: I, I, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but like my writer's heart just gets this one. The bookends that are also morphed Mm. into a three beat. Like, first of all, the efficiency of that storytelling to utilize two writing devices, put them together, and then do them so well. Like, you know, I got to say that completely gets me. Like, I absolutely loved that. All right, if you enjoyed this discussion and would like to join in, Patreon supporters can chat
1: with us and each other through our Patreon Discord channel. To find out how you can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or stubbornly refuse to dance with your wife at your son's wedding. Let's see how that works out for you. <laughs> i
0: love the way you delivered that one thanks so much for joining us we'll be back next time no really really we will with august issue 30 and the second title from the distant mirrors story collection until then well you know i nearly got married but that was a long time ago it never happened maybe that was my fault i don't know shit happens
1: you're both okay good luck